So, I'm not sure with the new year how many of you made New Year's resolutions. Or, more particularly, how many of you might have made New Year's resolutions regarding your faith. Uh, I, this congregation has always been one in which our best attendance... Uh, has been from the new year up until about Mother's Day. Uh, most congregations would tell you that their best attendance is after Labor Day and up through Christmas. You, you know, that, that might be where I used to be in Kentucky, that was the case. Uh, in a, a social media group of ministers that I'm part of, uh, that's what some of them will say. They will... You know, when it comes August, as uh, that post-Labor Day time approaches, you know, they will make some comment about, okay, our churches are about to experience the best attendance of the year. And I'd always think to myself, not us. Not us. And so I don't know if New Year's resolutions has anything to do with that. Uh, or if it's more about it's too cold to go to the river and hunting season is over. I don't know uh, if what, what the particulars are that have always made January through, uh, through the early spring or mid-spring uh, our best time of attendance. But I know that I myself have made New Year's resolutions regarding my faith. Uh, for example, I remember when I was a lot younger saying, you know, I am going to read the entire Bible through in a year. And then I realized how much reading that required. You know, that required a good bit of reading to get through. And as I joked, I, when I spoke, and Scotty and Steve were with me a couple of years ago at a, at a men's retreat, uh, a church in Georgia that did a men's retreat in East Tennessee. And, and when I spoke with them, I made the joke about Leviticus being the place where New Year's resolutions go to die. Uh, because you know you get through the great stories of the patriarchs and Genesis, and you know the the you know God's might is in uh, full display in the event of the Exodus, and uh, but boy, you get to Leviticus and all those all those laws, and uh, it, it's a place where it, it's easy to kind of uh, you know lose your your momentum or your motivation. Uh, but uh, I, I did real come to realize that. You could make it through God's Word. Uh, it took me more than a year, but uh, I, have, I was able to finally make it that cover to cover. But the idea here is New Year's resolutions, if they regard our faith, of I'm going to read God's Word more. I'm going to dedicate more time to God in prayer. I am going uh, to be present uh, on Sunday morning more often. Whatever those resolutions are regarding our faith, they are made with one specific purpose, aren't they? And that is to grow as children of God. Because that is something that we realize at some point is important, or at least we should realize at some point, is that it's not about being a consumer of religion, of just showing up and being spoon-fed something. It's about growing. And so I want us to look today at 
a way that I believe firmly that we, uh, as children of God, can grow uh, closer to God and certainly closer to one another. We're going to begin in Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, (coughs) Excuse me. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. Now, this is one of those times in the Gospels that we don't really know who these people are. We know Jesus. We know his disciples. We're about to see them, at least some of them named, in just a moment. But we don't know who this person is who's carrying the jar of water that meets them at the city gate. We don't know, uh, you know, is it their house? Or, you know, whose house is this exactly where Jesus and his disciples are going to spend this time in the upper room? And I've been long fascinated by this. Because in studying John's gospel, we come to realize it's not just a, a meal that they share in that upper room. They spend time in that upper room. And you read in, in the gospel of John, you get to you know, John uh, 13. And, uh, and boy, there's several chapters there where they spend in the upper room and we get, John gives us insight as to what Jesus taught them while they are in that upper room. It's information that's only in his gospel. But that's where we see Jesus get up and put the towel around his waist and then go from person to person washing their feet. It's in that upper room that Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. It's in that upper room that Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. Saying there is going to be, you know, I need to to depart from you. But there's going to be one who comes after me. I'm not going to leave you like orphan children, he tells them. I'm I'm, going to send a, a counselor, a helper, an advocate. And it's in that upper room that Jesus... Praise that prayer in John 17. That beautiful prayer where he says, Father, thank you. Thank you for not letting any harm fall on any of these. And he's talking about his disciples. And then he moves on from praying for his disciples to praying for the the Christian church as a whole. All who will come to accept Jesus as Lord. And so they are in that house for a good bit of time. And what they're doing there, 
serves as sort of a marker, uh, sort of an indicator of the way the New Testament church in its early days, and when I say early days, I mean really the first couple of hundred years, the way the early church would serve to worship God. Now, we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 12, the book of Acts serving as that sort of uh, history book of the early church. Beginning with verse 12 in Acts 1, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And so we're reminded that when Jesus chose his followers, when he chose his disciples, he chose 12. Now at this point, one of those 12 was no longer with them. But, you know, he could have chosen any size group. But he decided that this is the right number of followers that he needed. The, the correct number of those that will be closest to him. <coughs> Lots of people would be there for some of the signs and wonders, what we refer to as the miracles. Seeing people who could not walk now able to walk. The blind being able to see, those who were not able to talk, suddenly being able to communicate once again. Jesus demonstrated his power over nature when he calmed the storm. His power over the demonic forces of evil when he would cast out demons and make people whole once again. But it was to that small group of men that he would express the meanings of the parables in some cases. It was with that small group of men that, as I just alluded to, that he would spend time washing their feet and teaching them because he knew that the church would spread because of their efforts. And that's why when he would teach them, sometimes, or they would hear his teaching to a crowd, then they would kind of get behind closed doors. And that's when he would say these things to them. Not in front of everybody else. What's the old saying? You praise in public, you rebuke in private. You know, But he would say to them behind closed doors, Are you still not getting it? It might sound kind of harsh when he'd say, are you, still, are you still this dull? Because he knew that at some point they had to lock in. They had to get it. Any of you that have ever coached, uh, you, you know what that's like when at some point you're like, okay, you know, it's one thing to practice this stuff, but you know, game day is showing up. Game day is coming fast, and we got to get you ready. I remember coaching soccer when my son was little, and I remember there were things that, that, you, know, that you just had to drill over and over and over again. But then you things that, you know, you're, you're trying to prepare them. Hey, you know, it's one thing when it's just us. 
but there's going to be a bunch of kids out here Saturday morning, and they're going to wear different color T-shirts. And uh, you know, you know, we got a win-win-win, right? At some point, and yeah, even you know, six-year-olds playing soccer. You know, of course, at that time, if you've ever seen six-year-olds play soccer, it ain't pretty. Uh, you know, they all just huddle around the ball, huddle ball, and they just kind of move as a little lump of locust or something. But anyway, but. You know, and that's, that was Jesus with the twelve. He's saying, come on, y'all. I need, you to, I need you to start picking up on this. Because pretty soon it's going to be game day. Pretty soon I'm not going to be here is what he's thinking, I'm sure. Is there's going to come a time when I'm not going to be here and it's going to be up to you to be able to handle this. And that's why when he sends them out two by two... And man, they come back and they are just on fire. And they're like, oh my goodness. You wouldn't believe the stuff we did and you wouldn't believe the people we met and the, you know, what we were able to accomplish. And then Jesus prays that prayer to the Father and says, you know, Lord God, I, I'm, I rejoice that you have kept their eyes hidden. In other words, you, you let them go out there and you let it be positive. They needed that positive experience because that positive experience was so encouraging to them and it gave them the the momentum and the motivation they needed then to serve alongside Jesus you know all with all the more uh, fervency all all the more steadfastness that they would serve alongside Jesus and and because they were starting to get it because why church? Because they had gone out into the world and they'd gotten their hands a little bit dirty. Because we come in here and we sit among the antique pews and we sing the songs of praise and we shake hands and we hug necks and uh, <coughs> And we do all the things that we might not should be doing during flu season, but nonetheless, we, we come together and, and we encourage one another. What's that verse? Those two verses that Jeff read from Hebrews earlier this morning. That we spur one another on. Not a kind of necessarily the kind of language that we use in everyday life. But isn't that what we do? Sometimes the greatest blessing is a word of kindness or a word of encouragement from someone else in the body. And so we are spurred on because of being here together. And I appreciate you being here on a rainy day. And I echo Jeff's sentiment earlier that it is a beautiful day. Uh, I said to our class this morning, I'll, I'll take a, a cold rain over a quarter of inch of ice uh, any day of the week. And so, praise God for the rain that got rid of the remaining ice that could serve as a hindrance to us. And let's be people who encourage each other and people who can look at a rainy day and find goodness in the rainy day. Because that's what mature Christians do. Is they praise God on the rainy days. They praise God on the days that it's hard to get outside of the house.
that you find some good in every moment of life. Now, as we look forward in the book of Acts, and we look at some different examples of the early church being together, Acts 12.12, When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, this is Peter. And Peter has been in jail. And this is at a time when the early church is really upset. Because one of the apostles uh, has already been executed for the cause of Christ. Peter is in jail. And they're thinking, well, what in the world is going to stop them from executing Peter as well? And, of course, then that's where God intervenes. Because the forces of evil work against the gospel and God is there with a counter move. Something else I mentioned in our class this morning. That it's a series of God showing us that He overcomes the dark forces every single time. And so Peter finds himself not in jail anymore, but he's outside. And at first he's like, am I dreaming? And that's why this verse opens with these words, when this had dawned on him, when he realized, I'm not dreaming, I'm standing out here in the street outside of the jail. And so then he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, the author of the second gospel, incidentally where many people had gathered and were praying. Because that's where they did it, church family. They did it in homes. And Acts 16.40, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them before they left. And so, Paul and Silas have had their own uh, experience of being jailed for the cause of the gospel. And so uh, they too found themselves out of prison and the first place, place they go is to someone's house where they know that they will be welcomed warmly and at someone's house where a group of believers was praying and uh, where they met, and they were what? They were encouraged because of being there. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, as we often see at the conclusion of Paul's letters, he kind of gives this list of, hey, tell this person I said hello, and be sure to help out this person because they're doing a good work. And then... He says this in 1 Corinthians 16, The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. And so we see the example once again that the Christians were meeting in homes. And so they didn't have church buildings for the first couple of centuries. The earliest church building we have evidence of is not until at least the third century. And so they were meeting in homes. Now, where all this is going is small groups. As I mentioned this morning, uh, that I need folks to commit once again or recommit 
because the plan here with small groups is to meet most Wednesday nights uh, starting here in a few weeks once we can get everything reorganized from where we had it at the end of the summer. And on the first night, uh, Sunday night of the month, we're going to be here at the building and we're going to enjoy a time of singing. And then the other Sunday nights of the month that there is going to be a study guide available to the leaders. The study guide for tonight is out there on the table. And we're going to have the opportunity. The the sign-up sheets will be out in the next couple of weeks. We'll have the opportunity then from going to meeting sort of as a pseudo-small group here at the church. Anytime you have, you know, 20-plus people meeting together, it kind of negates the smallness of what's going on. And I know this congregation has undertaken small groups in the past. And I've heard the stories of 52 people being at one person's house. And of course, it's like, you know, if you've ever organized small groups, that was one thing I was in charge of as the associate minister back in Kentucky, is uh, you know that 52 people is not small. 52 people, that's, well, that's about four or five groups right there, is what that is. You know, the ideal small group is somewhere about five to twelve people. Anywhere in that range. What is it, what is it that we're, we're told in the New Testament where two or three gather, or two or more gather, and depending on the translation, you know, that, that I am there with them. And so the ideal size for a group meeting somewhere is about 5 to 12 people. Yeah, I can get a little over 12. But typically, as a rule of thumb, once it's consistently at 15, 16 people or more, then it's time to create a new group from that. And so the idea here is that we're going to be together Uh, starting here in a couple of weeks and through February, March, April, and up to the early part of May. It's not going to be all the time. It's going to meet for a season and then take a break and then we'll start groups again uh, in the fall. That's the idea behind this. And I've seen it work. I've seen it work elsewhere and I've seen it bear fruit. I've seen people grow together because let's face it, uh, if you're, you're here on a Sunday morning and grateful that you are for this sacred time of the week, but you can only get to know somebody so much by simply being in the same large room with them. You can only get to learn so much about someone when you're just all sitting facing the same direction. Listening to a message, singing those songs, praying the prayers together. There are people that are here this morning that you won't even get a chance to talk to because you won't get within close enough proximity this morning. Now that's nothing against the Sunday morning corporate assembly. I love it. It's a sacred time. I prepare hours for this time of the week. Our song leaders prepare for this time of the week. But, in terms of growth, in terms of growing together and caring for one another, 
you can't get a very deep relationship by sitting in a room that will hold 450 people. That's just not how deep relationships are formed. It's simply not. Our church in Kentucky started doing small groups, I think it was about 2003. About eight years, eight, nine years I guess before I moved here. And there were groups that met in people's homes. There were groups that met at the church building. And uh, regardless of where you meet is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the size of the group and that the group meets. That's the most important thing here. When small groups come together, there is a small group covenant that the facilitator will read. The leader of that group will, will share the covenant with the group. And people in that group sign off on that covenant. Because what you find over time, church, is this is a place where people will share on a much deeper level than they would on a Sunday morning. Unless you're in a class, you don't have an opportunity to share. But that a much deeper level than people will typically share on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. And you will learn things about your brothers and sisters of Christ that you had no idea of. You will forge relationships with people that otherwise you never would have hardly spoken to them. And that's what small groups has meant to me as being a part of of different groups in the past and then being asked to join a church staff and be the person who trains people for those groups and who sort of keeps up with those groups as I did previously. That small groups is a place where you know, my wife revealed when we were expecting our second child that she said, Hey y'all, Greg and I are expecting again. Not something that she had planned to do that early in her pregnancy, but a trust that she had of the group and the situation we were in, meeting in someone's home, and she shared that. She wanted the prayers and the support of the group. She received prayers and support of that, from that group some weeks later when she lost that child. Small groups create a level of connection that are not experienced otherwise. Scripture says about it, first of all, that we're to be people who bear fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so we're to be people who bear this kind of fruit. I know from my personal experience that bearing that kind of fruit becomes easier when I am among a group of Christians where we know each other on a deeper level, where we possess deeper discussions. 
According to the New Testament Scripture, Romans 15, 14, we are to instruct one another. Uh, Steve Tiller got up here, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, and made a comment about finding it refreshing, uh, the kind of classes we have since he and his family have started worshiping here, where it's not just simply a lecture on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, but where we open it to a time of discussion. And small groups does that the same. That it is a time where it may not be the comments of the facilitator that's the most meaningful thing that you take home with you that night. That it is, that it is a, uh, it's something that someone else shared. It's something someone someone else said. Small groups is not simply about going through a curriculum together. Small groups isn't just about learning to how to hands-on apply the Sunday morning message. Small groups is about that deeper level of connection and learning from someone else's life. But we are to instruct one another. We are to encourage one another according to 1 Thessalonians 4.18. We are to love one another according to Galatians 5.13. And we are to carry one another's burdens according to Galatians 6.2. Now, these are just four examples. There are several more in the New Testament that instruct us that we, what we are to do for and with one another. But instruct, encourage, love, and carry each other's burdens. That is far easier to do when you are in a closer-knit group than it is when something happens to someone and you hardly know them. That is another benefit of small groups. Now, let me say, groups don't have to meet on Sunday night. Uh, I've always seen in churches where uh, there, there's, there are people that might, maybe, maybe Monday night is a good night, maybe Tuesday night, maybe Thursday night. But the group can decide when they want to meet. And having a group that meets sometime other than Sunday is perfectly fine. What's important, as I said before, is that the group is committed to meeting. Small groups... Maybe something you've never been a part of. It may be something you've been a part of in the past and didn't have a great experience. What I encourage you to do is to pray about this. As your minister, I'm asking you to pray about this. Pray maybe whether or not God wants you to open your home. And it doesn't have to be at the same home within the group every time. People in the group can rotate. It's just best that the facilitator not be a host if we can avoid that. Maybe one of you says, hey, I'd love to have it at my house where I don't have to go anywhere and I'm happy to facilitate it when it is. And that's fine too. I know from personal experience what it's like to do that. We opened our home on Kelly Drive in Glasgow, Kentucky for a couple of years and we had a group that met with us. I facilitated. But... What I'm asking you is to pray about this. To pray whether or not God is putting it on your heart 
to be a part of one. God's putting it on your heart to facilitate a group or even to open your home at times and host a group. I'm asking you to pray about this. And the reason I'm doing that is because church family, once again, I've seen small groups bear fruit in the lives of people who participate. I remember those brothers and sisters in Christ at our congregation previously that that said, you know, wasn't sure about this whole small group thing. You know, been in church all my life. And of course, this, as you could tell, is the, is the voice of a seasoned saint. Been in church all my life. And we met at the building on Sunday night. And I wasn't sure about this. But then said, it's the best thing I've been a part of in a long, long time. Because they experienced something that the early church got to experience that by virtue of large gatherings that we had lost. The large gathering on Sunday morning isn't going anywhere, church. It's still going to be here. A warm place when it's cold outside, a dry place on a rainy morning, a cool place when it's 95 degrees in the shade. The Sunday morning sacred gathering of the saints will still be here. But this is a way for the Hohenwald Church of Christ to grow closer together. So whether you've not done it before, maybe not had the greatest experience, I ask that you prayerfully consider when we start this in a few weeks, coming back and giving this a try or giving it a try for the first time. So this comes down to what will you do in 22? What will you do in this year to grow as a child of God? Because if you're the same person in December that you are right now, then I hate to tell you, but then you failed as a child of God. God is giving you an entire year to grow. What are you going to do to grow? What are you going to do to grow to be more like Jesus? I contend that small groups is a way to accomplish that. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. And if we want to walk as Jesus did... We have to grow in our faith. We have to grow to be more like Jesus. We have to grow to be a person who loves one another. We have to grow to be a person who carries one another's burdens. Who at times pours themselves into other people. We have to be a people that are more forgiving than we were in the year before. That's what it means to grow. That's what it means to bear good fruit. Let's be those people, church family. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet taken advantage of the opportunity...